And he demonstrated how to take solvents during the workshop. And I went home and took them. Welcome to Straight Talking with Fiona Mack. I'm Fiona McLaughlin-Healy and today we're talking about drugs, drug addiction, the trends and statistics around drugs, the state's response to addiction, is it good enough, could it be better and if so, how? And with me today to thrash out some of the issues is Mick O'Brien. Mick is a historian, singer, songwriter, musician, radio presenter with Dublin City FM of, I think, one of the longest running music or folk music shows in the world, which is quite incredible. And Mick is also a lecturer in applied social studies and lectures in Carlow IT and Maynooth University and has a particular interest in youth work. So you're very welcome here today, Mick. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for having me. <laughs> that yeah, it's is great a to be here. I was wondering were you talking about somebody of, else when you were, <laughs> you were saying that. Curious. I mean, you, you have quite a CV <laughs> yeah. there. So thank you for taking some time out of your, your busy, busy day to, to come and talk with me. Not Mick, at all. Um, I'm going to start with some of the hard questions, really. Um, you and I, we've known each other for, for some yeah. time and... Um, you're going to talk a little bit about your exp- um, experience of addiction and how it impacted on, on you. Yeah. Um, I suppose, Fiona, to say it's not something I do too often. Uh, I talk about lots of things, uh, both on the air and off the air, but I, I very seldom talk about this. I probably only ever spoke about it maybe twice or three times before. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, I am, I am a recovering alcoholic. I am a recovering drug addict, uh, drug user. Um, I have been in recovery for, um, 28 years now. Um, so I've been completely clean and sober for the last 28 years. So what that means is that I, um, I stopped using and I, I got into recovery when I was 18 years old, um, which uh, is very uncommon. Um, certainly uncommon back yes, then for somebody is. to yeah. to stop yeah. using to stop drinking at that age. Realistically, I should I should have been only starting at that age, but uh, my my journey in terms so of using whatever it was came to an end at that point. Um, into your addiction, how it started, you know where. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you have to kind of. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you have to kind of look. At, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I suppose you have to look at really. The context of what it was like back then, you know, the nineteen eighties. Uh, I I grew up in a in a council housing estate in in Wexford, uh, just outside Gory, a little small village, um, very much mm. a, a farming area, uh, very a huge amount of wealthy people, very wealthy people around, and we were in this kind of uh, pocket of poverty in in this uh, housing estate in 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 this little village. Um, so from an early age, I can I can remember mm. feeling. Uh, Apart from, rather than a part of, uh, you know, I went to school with uh, kids who were being dropped off in mm. Mercs and BMWs, and you know, we could hardly afford the lunch and to was, go to school. Was, you know that kind of thing. So feeling of different, um, the environment in which you grew up, like it is for so many Irish people. Without doubt, funny enough. Yeah. So many. Yeah. Irish people. Without doubt, funny enough, um, nobody drank at home in my house. Uh, I don't. I don't come from that okay. background. So there was a teetotal yeah. house household at home. So where were you exposed? But the community was full where of it. Absolutely full of it. Uh, so where were you exposed? 
Uh, the first drug mm-hmm. I ever took, uh, funny enough, it wasn't alcohol. Most With most people, it, it is alcohol. For me, it wasn't. Uh, I was in sixth class in school. I can remember it well. There was a guy who came in to do a, a workshop, an anti-drugs workshop, and he demonstrated how to take solvents during the workshop. And I went home and took them. Wow. And so what he was trying to do was the complete opposite. He had the there opposite There is the law of unintended consequences right there. So the exact opposite of what he was trying to yeah. do actually happened. Yeah, I can remember it well. I can, I can still picture it. Uh, it was a bottle of imperial leather deodorant. I could still taste it. This minute, I can taste it. Yeah. Uh, what, it what it tasted like. But I, more to the point, I can remember what it done to me. And what it done to me was that it changed me. It changed how I felt about myself. It changed how I felt about how where I lived, the family that I lived in. Uh, it changed that fear that I was in. I was in constant fear and anxiety as a young person growing up. Took it away from me. Um, and it made me feel normal. And uh, I'd done that as often as I could from there on in. Shortly after that, I discovered alcohol. Um, when you say shortly after, what age are we talking now, Mick? Probably 11 or 12. Okay. Uh, Discovered alcohol down the fields is, with the lads. Which is qu- quite young. I mean, I yeah. know we're, we're very exposed to it here yeah. in, in, in this country, but, but 11 is quite young to yeah. have, you know, been at that stage where you had tried, you were taking drugs. Yeah. Sol- yeah. You know, you were using solvents yeah. on a regular basis and then you now moved on to, to alcohol, yeah. alcohol at 11. When I discovered alcohol, uh, it lit me up like a Christmas tree. It brought me to life. Um, In a different way to what the solvents Completely different. Uh, completely different. Uh, the chemical, whatever chemical was in it, I was missing it. And uh, and it just, it made me feel part of, you know. I, I was always like a round peg in a square hole, but now I fit it in, you know. It didn't matter about who I was, what I looked like, who, what I was wearing. None of that mattered. Mm. Um, and uh, alcohol made me feel normal. It made me feel part of society or part of or whatever it was and I I made a commitment to myself or I remember it making a commitment to myself that I would drink as much as I could as often as I could and I did so it gave you a connectedness really that you hadn't felt before you you had come upon um, or had you had been using alcohol and then in terms of where it brought you to, Mick, so it, it starts out as, as it always does with, mm. with any kind of, of drugs, whether it's, whether it's prescribed or un- unprescribed, but yeah. it gives that, uh, that, that high, you know, that, that relief from burdens, from fears, from worries, you know. Yeah. We all, you know, I'm talking because, I, you know, obviously I would have drank, you know, yeah. over the years. I was a student in, in college twice, you know, so, so I know and understand absolutely what what it does for for people as as many of us of us do but at what point did it get that you realized that the the enjoyment uh, was lessening and the downsides of it were were increasing yeah. can you remember that that journey i can i can remember um i can remember probably at 14 or 15 years of age kind of uh, realizing that my appetite for alcohol wasn't the same as my friends at 14 or 15 years of age um the last place I wanted to do, wanted to go was go home. I wanted the party to continue on where they would get to a point where they had enough. I never had enough. Uh, it was always about the next one, the next one, the next one and trying to create situations where it would continue. And I, I realised that. I realised that these other lads were you telling me this. that you realised that at 14 years yeah. of age, that you had that insight into your, yeah. into your drinking at that age? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 
I could feel it. I could, I could feel the physical addiction in me. I could feel the, the fact that uh, I remember clearly, again, I can visualise it, uh, where I lived, uh, there was a, a bench, a street bench, and we used to sit on this bench um, during the day or after school or wherever the case may be. And I can remember sitting there and my hands shaking. My hands were shaking mm. like on a Wednesday because I hadn't drank on Tuesday and Monday or, yeah. or whatever. And I could, uh, that physical craving, that physical addiction was very much part of, of me at that time. And that's just the physical element of it. The yeah. rest of the stuff that was going on in my yeah. head was, was, was like, that's another ball game altogether, you know? That low self-esteem, that kind of... Uh, that draws you to it in the first place. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then that, 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 you know, when you drink or you use or whatever it is, um, you, feel, you feel part of, but you have to wake up the next morning and you have to do it again, mm. do you know? Mm. Um, like it doesn't last. It, it doesn't last, you know. Um, at 16, I was drinking in the mornings. You know, I was I was I was keeping whatever I had from the night before for the morning because I knew I needed it in the morning, you know. And then, it, you know, it led me on to other stuff like weed and, you know, LSD and speed and, you know, all the other stuff. Um, and I've used most of what's out there, but my drug of choice always was alcohol. That was the one that done it for me, regardless of what I, what I used. That was the one I wanted. That was the one that I... Anything else would do, but that was my choice, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. And tell us a little bit then about the decision to give it up, to to, to walk away from Uh, from all of that at quite a young age. Well, it wasn't my decision. It's as simple as that. Uh, I had been, uh, my father, my father, God help him at home, Jesus, what I put him through was unbelievable. Like, you know, there was... uh, I was involved in a lot of criminal activity as well as a young fella because I needed money all the time. Mm. And, and uh, so all the all the hassle that that brought to the door and the court cases and, you know, probations and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. he was on my back all the time. He was on my case all the time. And he never left me. He never left me, you know. He was always there. And, you know, I'd be in court and he'd be the only one that was standing there, do you know. Mm. Um, but yet I, I detested him. You know, because he was trying to stop me doing something that was making me feel good about myself, you know. So it's that battle that was going on Mm. all the time. So I had tried to stop when I was 17. Um, I remember making a commitment. A few things had happened. And I remember making a commitment to myself that I'll never do that again. You know, I won't do that again. And I stopped drinking from and I stopped using from January until Paddy's Day. And I real I said to myself in Paddy's Day, Jesus, like I've stopped now for two and a half months or whatever it is. There's no problem here. There's no issue here. And I went back at it again. And between then and when I stopped when I was 18, the damage that I'd done was colossal, absolutely colossal to myself and to to other people as well. So I had been involved in an incident one night. I remember it well. It was on the 16th of October 1991 um, where uh, I had had robbed someone's car. I wrote it off and I wrote myself off and I wrote another car off as well. Um, and I was prosecuted. Um, I was in court and I was looking at a long sentence, a long sentence. Uh, whatever it was within the judge, I don't know what he's seen in me. I don't know. I don't know what happened. But he said to me, uh, my previous convictions had were read out and he realised, and I actually realised for the first time that all these convictions were all alcohol related, everything that I'd been involved in. And he said to me, you can go for treatment if you want, or you can go to Mount Joy, whichever you want. And I said, well, I'll go to treatment. I didn't want to go, but I said, I'll go to treatment. So I ended up in a rehab 
um, at 18. And uh, Which was interesting because he didn't force it on you. So there was part, o- there was ownership by you of the decision to go, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. 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 So I went in there with no desire to stop. Yeah. I really, my desire was to get these six or eight weeks, whatever okay. it was, over me and I'll come out the other end and I'll do it differently the next time. Do you know what I mean? That was my thinking. Yeah. But something happened to me in there. Something happened I from a person who had no desire going in to a person who had an absolute desire to stop when I left. Um, you know, there's many theories around that. There's many mm. theories around spiritual awakenings and, you know, all like a, kind yeah. of a, a mental shift or a psychological shift or whatever. Something happened. There's no doubt about that, that something happened. And I've been clean and sober ever since. Which is incredible and yeah. is a gift, whatever it is that that, that happens when, when yeah. somebody gets an opportunity to, yeah. to really turn turn their lives around. Yeah. Not not everybody is is so lucky, you yeah. know. Yeah. What I what I think what I received in there, which I didn't bargain for, I received compassion and love. Yes. That's what I received in there. From people I didn't know. From people who were in the same situation as me. Um I didn't bargain for that element of compassion at all. And I really probably had never received that before. And that idea of compassion, you know, I think was the catalyst in terms of change. And in turn, do you find, Mick, um, and I know you demonstrate it all the, all the time, but, you know, just for, for listeners, do you, uh, you know, it, there's that whole idea of being brought to your worst to your lowest and yeah. experiencing compassion from others yeah. teaches you empathy and compassion for others in turn yeah i think it's something that i think it's something that we all need we all need that idea of empathy and compassion you know in today's world like you know we have a drug crisis at the moment mm. in ireland not just in newbridge and kildare but in 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 the whole country this country is awash with cocaine at the moment Every village, every town, every street, everywhere. The housing estate that I live in, you know, the streets up next door, everywhere. It's a wash with it. And the response uh, is failing. That response of crime and punishment is failing. Well, maybe we'll go back a step because I think it yeah. is important, you know, you know, so so you know and understand what, you know, the, the very heart of the, the subject that, w- that we're talking about. You know and understand and have, li- have lived addiction. And you're a historian, so you know a lot about the state's response to addiction in Ireland. And, you know, as I was saying that, you know, really in Ireland, it, it's just so prevalent. Drinking in yeah. particular in particular is just so prevalent. It's just so normal. It's such a yeah. normalised part of our of our, our culture. And, and we do see the outcomes in terms of alcoholism, in terms of cirrhosis. We're seeing increasing rates of cirrhosis and liver-related yeah. illnesses amongst women who are now, you know, since wine came in and wine o'clock and, and all the mm. rest, it's been far more acceptable to, to drink wine at home than it was to come in and open up a bottle of vodka or yeah. whatever. And we're seeing that borne out in the illnesses that yeah. they are now seeing in the, in the hospitals and the stats are a, around that. Um, go back a little bit for us and give us a little bit of background around drugs in Ireland you know Mm. in the 70s the drugs that we were looking at was LSD and cannabis and it sort of went from there didn't it? It did yeah even if we go back further than that you know some of our most creative minds in Ireland you know uh, poets writers uh, Joyce and Yeats and 
all them guys, they were using drugs. The people you know? we eulogise. Yeah. Oh yeah, they, yeah. they were all. They yeah. were stoned out their faces, yeah. writing whatever it was. Like one of the great poets, James Clarence Mangan, uh, was a brilliant, brilliant poet. He was. Uh, he wrote extensively about his creativity, and wrote that the reason why he was so creative is because he was using an opiate called linum. And he was lashing the linum out of it. And he was stoned yeah. out of his box writing these wonderful poems, do you yeah. know. Um, and, you know, Yeats was the same. Wilde was the same. All of them were, were the same. Go up to Brendan Bean. He was another one who was drinking to, hugely to excess and writing massive stuff. Uh, but we have a, a very particular attitude to alcohol in this country, which is amazing, like, really. Uh, you know, alcoholism is the disease of illusion. Because alcoholics, like myself, we create illusions in our heads. And it's amazing how if you're on a drinking session, you'll meet people who will assist you with your illusions because yes. they're in the illusion as well. So that's on a personal level. but on so, so it's a collective illusion, a I shared think, illusion. Completely. On a societal level, we have an illusion about alcoholism as well. Um, you know, it's kind of like we accept it that because we're Irish. Um you know, you're right in the 70s and whatever, when these other drugs started coming in, we started to take note. Had they not have come in, I think this idea of alcoholism would have continued on and the state would have sanctioned it, you know, to many degrees. But when cannabis started coming in and the opiates started coming in, opiates first arrived in Ireland in 1979. Uh, a shipment of heroin came in uh, in 79. Uh, coincidentally, it was the year the Pope came to Ireland in 1979. And uh, well, I think it tied in with the production of uh, of centres, opiate centres in Afghanistan and Iran. Is that it right? Did. It yeah. did indeed. Yeah. The, the trail and the path across yeah. was laid out for them. They arrived in, first shipment made its way to Dolphins Barn in, in Dublin. And within six months, there was a generation of people wiped out. Now, that's catastrophic. Like, it really yeah. is catastrophic. I've been, I don't know what the word is, whether it's honoured or, or not, whatever... I've been, uh, over the years, I have played at funerals, uh, played music at funerals of young people who had died from heroin overdoses or for drug overdoses. I've also played at funerals where they might be the third or the fourth or the fifth child in that family that have died from heroin overdoses. Um, in 79, we had an opportunity, or certainly in the 80s, the beginning of the 80s, we had an opportunity to declare a drugs epidemic in Ireland. But we didn't. What we done was we ignored it. We buried our head in the sand. In 1984, where when we were at the height of the heroin epidemic, there was, in 1984, there was a survey done and Dublin 8 had the highest population of intravenous drug users in Europe. That was in the space of five years, right? We had 12 beds in Beaumont Hospital for a heroin detox, a medical detox. That was it. So the highest in Europe, and what I find interesting about that is, what was it about us or about parts of Dublin yeah. that made us vulnerable yeah. or made those communities vulnerable yeah. to that level of sort of capitulation, really, Absolutely, to the drug? Yeah. Poverty is the common denominator, I think, of, yeah. of opiate use. Um, and in some cases, alcoholism as well, but more with opiate use because... Even today, we understand and we know the dangers of heroin, right? So we, we, I suppose sometimes you have to ask the question, is why do people use heroin? Because we know the dangers of it. We know what it's like. Mm. We know how addictive it is and so on. But if you understand pain and you understand how much pain people mm. are in and you understand that heroin is a painkiller, well, then it makes sense. 
makes absolute sense. So these communities that you're talking about, you know, Dolphins Barn, Rialto, St. Michael's Estate in Chicor, Ballymun, Ballyfermot, they were in pain. Them communities were in pain. The pain of poverty, that's what they were in. The pain of social isolation. We were, we, the country was in a mass recession. So huge unemployment, massive unemployment, mass emigration. So if you add up them social, con- that social context, mm. heroin use makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. There, there's a series of experiments that were done by Bruce um, Alexander. Yes. I th- I, I, yes. Have you heard of them? And, I have, yeah. Uh, the Rat Park experiments yeah. where before he started doing these experiments, was it in the 70s it and, and 80s? Before that, they they had sort of, they had done experiments on, on rats and they had the heroin in one water and, yeah. you know, just plain water in the other and yeah. the rats went to the, went to the heroin water all the time and alcoholism was seen as the absence of sobriety, whereas um, Bruce Alexander came along and set up a rat park for the same test and actually had food and balls and wheels and, you know, someplace that the the rats could actually enjoy and and connect with, with each other. And what they found was that the rats were far less likely to go to the heroin water rather than the the ordinary the yeah. the plain water and his hypothesis was that uh, addiction is not the absence of sobriety it's the absence of connectedness yeah. and th- i i i that really resonates yeah. with me you know it changes the whole your whole perspective in terms of yeah looking for solutions for example yeah if you see it as a an illness of a failure of society to provide environments within which people can grow and thrive and connect with each other and that drug addiction is almost an inevitable outcome if we fail to do that yeah they reckon that there's um the terrorists would say that there are three elements that make up somebody who is uh, an addict or an alcoholic. Uh, so one is is that idea of the lack of connectedness, right, yeah. that you're talking about. Secondly is a traumatic event or a number of traumatic events that have happened in their lives. And then thirdly is that their uh, their genes are predisposed, dis, uh, they have a disposition in terms yeah. of, uh, yeah, to, to addiction. Now, uh, I'd sign up to that. I definitely yeah. would sign up to that. Um, but does that mean then that we can't change things? No, it doesn't. It does. What it means is that we have a group of people who genetically are conditioned to use to excess. They're at a disadvantage. They're at a disadvantage, but they're not doomed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We can yeah. we can work with them, and change can happen. They don't have to experience the the lack of connectedness. I, I don't think anyone should experience yes. that. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And if they don't experience that, the chances of them progressing along with their with their addiction i think is limited there's actually a duty on us it makes yeah. every sort of sense in yeah. terms of just being humanitarian just being humane about the entire Absolutely, thing yeah. but also there's economic arguments yeah. for yeah. making sure that you know that people have the education that they need that you know yeah. children who are at a disadvantage are encouraged to, to stay in school that they are yeah. given the supports and services and yeah. the facilities and amenities and youth facilities and skate parks and whatever Absolutely. it is that that Absolutely. they need to enjoy their without a doubt without their community doubt. yeah and i think we in we in this country we have been very bad at that we have been really bad at that if you look at the even the regeneration projects that have happened, we'll mm. say in Limerick and in Ballymun and St. Michael's Estate and in Shakur, 
uh, yes, they have done physical regeneration. And in some cases, they've done it very well. In some cases, they've done it very badly as well. But in some cases, they've done, done it very well. But they forgot about the social regeneration completely. You know, the youth centres, the, the five-a-side football pitches, the drama centres, the, the theatres, the, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. They forgot about all that piece. Um, so you, you land people in these wonderful new buildings. And what do they do? Nothing. Do you know what I mean? It's it's crazy. Like it's it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. So, how successful do you think the the drugs task force have? Been, excuse me, I'm tongue tied there. But the yeah. drug task forces yes. have been. Um, I think they've been successful to a point, right? I think uh, I think the introduction of the drugs task force in in the 1990s was a very welcomed addition, and the money that was put into it was a really welcome addition because. I was involved in uh, I was involved in the early nineties in in youth work in Dublin and um, and we again were we were were kind of uh, feeling the results of that heroin epidemic that was there. The reality is that the state's response from the the seventies the late seventies right up until the drugs task force in the early nineties had been nil until that happened nil at all uh, there was talks of methadone programs there was uh, you know there was a scarce amount of methadone available but very scarce and very ad hoc you had people who were living in Galway travelling daily to Dublin to take methadone and travelling back again do you know that kind of thing mm. uh, the 12 bed situation where uh, people were just landed in for a medical detox just a medical detox that's all so the film, film full of Librium or whatever it might be for a period of time and then released them put them back out on the street again um, so the drugs task force changed all that. It looked at a kind of a multidisciplinary approach to drug use, uh, where they engaged with youth workers for the first time, they engaged with social workers, they engaged with counsellors, with residential treatment centres and, and so on. So it was a multidisciplinary approach, which I think was, was very progressive um, and, it, and it, it worked very well. To a degree? To a degree. Yeah. But over recent years, I think it's gone very stale. I think it's gone really stale over recent years. Well, I think if you look at the at the the figures and how it might have been of its time, and you know, yeah, I know people exactly. that are working in in the task forces, and you know, they're doing incredible work. They they, they really really are. But yeah. what what frightens me a little bit is the growth of drug use. You know, yeah. we were talking a while ago, you know, about cer- certain inner city parts yeah. of, of Dublin now for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, this is nationwide. This is in every town and yeah. village in Ireland. I have a 15-year-old. I have a 13-year-old and, a, and a, an 11-year-old. And, you know, two out of three of them have been exposed to incidents and offers of, of drugs or whatever. And yeah. that really sort of scares me, given that, you know, we're all trying to keep an eye on and know where our kids are and all and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. And I know from, from the figures, like I think the, the most recent, the All-Ireland Drug Use Survey in 2016, you know, the stats yeah. show that, that it is increasing all drugs, the use of all drugs across all of Ireland, North and South, was on was on the increase. Yeah. So, you know, I just have this feeling that that well, it, it's it's evident that we need to try something new. But what is that something new? Yeah. What what should we be focusing on? It's a good question, Fiona. It's a really good question. Um, I think let me just take a little step back, and then I'll come back to that. Um, 
I think you're right. I think uh, we have an epidemic in Ireland at the moment where, you know, the, the cocaine use in Ireland is unbelievable. The people using weed is just crazy, just absolutely crazy. And they they smoke weed and they, uh, they justify their weed smoking by saying that it's for medicinal use, um, but it's not for medicinal use. It has, uh, weed has a medicinal compound in it, but you don't smoke it for that. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so th- that's progressing along. So we have groups of young people. I, I do some uh, work then in, in a treatment centre in Kilkenny, um, and it's the only treatment centre in Europe that takes from ages of 15 to 21. So this is a residential treatment centre, and the amount of young people coming in there and the only thing that they've ever used is weed. And their lives are chaotic because of it. So I think we need to dispel that argument first that weed is just that. It's, it's whatever. Okay. Cocaine, and can I ask yeah. your thoughts, Mick? And I don't know them. Yeah. Um, so I'm asking you with that, without knowing um, you know, the answer to it. Like, What are you, your thoughts on decriminalization of drugs? I don't think, I don't think any drug user should be criminalised. I none at all across the board. Um, I absolutely believe that drug dealers should be criminalised, but not the ones who are dealing to feed their own habit. Um, I think we have a we have a, a cartel number of cartels that are operating in Ireland that are becoming that are millionaires and becoming more every day as they as each day goes by. And the argument is that while we have drugs criminalised, yeah. that they are becoming richer, that the price of drugs comes down, That's that right. people who are in the throes of addiction or who are addicted yeah. have to turn less to criminality to pay for their, yeah. their drugs. I think the war on drugs when it when it came to an end in, in America, I think the price yeah. of cocaine ca- came down by 97%. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the potency changes when you decriminalise drugs mm. and it's quite a counterintuitive thing I remember doing an, an essay on it actually for uh, my studies in um, what was it was it um, psychology yeah. in in college and it's it's counterintuitive but the more research I did the more the the it stacked up yeah. you know the reasons why um, decriminalization I mean it, it's back again, to that intended and, and unintended consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's back to that discussion that was had and an argument that was had about the head shops when mm. you had Jim McDade was was a, a, um, against the, the criminalisation um, of the head shops because he felt that that would lead to more street dealing, which he yeah. felt was was more unsafe. And Chris Andrews was, was for it. It's a difficult, it's a really difficult debate. It, it, it is a And I think the medical community are actually coming out more recently against the decriminalization of, of drugs. Well, if we look at if we look at the criminalization first of, yeah. first of all of drug users. So if we were to travel to Mount Joy this evening or to Clover Hill or any of the other institutions around the place, I would say that probably eighty percent of people who are in there are in there for drugs convictions, right? It's not working. They'll get released and they'll come back out and they'll do whatever it is they're doing again. So that process of criminalisation is not working. So I think what what needs to happen, uh, like in Portugal and countries like this, is that um, we we do have a drugs court in Dublin. So we have one drugs court in Dublin, okay, where people who are hardened drug users and they are being convicted of a particular crime go to the drugs court as such and they are sentenced to rehab or they are sentenced to X amount of counselling sessions or whatever the case may be, I think that needs to be across the board. I think 
So we have a, if we have a problem in Newbridge, which we do have a problem in mm. Newbridge. So if you were to take one any of the drug users in, in Newbridge and lock them up in Mount Joy, the chances of them coming out in three months' time and being exactly yeah. where they are is very high. Whereas if we show them some compassion, Fiona, yeah. some compassion and some care and some, let me say, let's not even forget that word, love. Compassion, yeah. care and love. The response to that can be a hell of a lot better, I think. Residential treatment, I think, is a is a... It's something that is being overlooked at the moment. We don't have enough places in Ireland for residential treatment. If I'm, if I'm middle class or upper class or whatever the case may be, and I want to go into a residential treatment centre this evening, if I have 10 grand, I'll get in there. Yes. I, I could be in yeah. probably before 10 o'clock yeah. tonight if I wanted to be, right? But tell me what heroin user has 10 grand. They don't have it. It's as simple yeah. as that. So the state, I think, needs to take control of this. And the state needs to start providing treatment rather than imprisonment. And and you mentioned the problem in, in Newbridge and that, you know, th- it's obviously escalating to a degree yeah. in terms of because now people are more aware of it. And, you know, I know there's lots of drug taking and prescription drugs and all that sort of stuff going on behind closed doors. But people don't get nervous about drugs yeah. and, and drugs, drug abuse until it's visible and it's in, you know, it's 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 in public and it affects people's sense of safety and security. And obviously about a year ago, I think I was brought to see um, drugs littering down yeah. along by yeah. our, our public park in, in Newbridge, Liffey Linear Park. And, you know, it, it, it really sort of hit me in the face, sort of the, the reality of it, you know, seeing the needles and, you know, because somebody has to, to pick this up, yeah. somebody has to, has to clean it up. But also sort of the futility of, you know, going down Air Street or down by the Liffey Linear Park, picking up people, you know, bringing them over to, to court, you know, they're coming back out on, on bail. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a vicious circle and, it, and it's dealing with the symptoms rather than with the, yeah. the problems. So then you start to look at, well, okay, what do we need to do here? Is there something different? Do we need to be more creative in terms of, of what we're, we're doing? And I know they, they're they doing interesting stuff in other jurisdictions and it's not that they're getting it all right. I mentioned no. the UK to somebody recently. They were like, oh my God, don't talk to me about the UK. <laughs> they're not getting it right. But I did hear about... Um, like, you know, a lot of people turn to the guards and say, well, you know, we need the guards to, to do something. And I do think they're, they're part of the jigsaw, but mm-hmm. I do think we're too much is almost expected yeah. um, of the guards. But they are certainly an important part of the the, the jigsaw. But um, the, the UK, I, I heard about a piece where... Um, in the UK, the guards actually have nurses in the in the stations yeah, yeah. because it comes back to this idea of like, what is justice? Is criminalizing or jailing mentally unwell or people who have met, mental illness yeah. or addiction? Is that what we were aiming for? And and, and I really and, don't and, think and it is. That's what we've done in the past. We've done that yeah. in the past. Uh, we, you know, this thing about uh, this process of eugenics, right? People who didn't fit within into society, like drug users or alcoholics or people with intellectual disabilities, we took them out of society, we locked them up. In, in some cases, they never got out again. With no sentence or whatever, we put them into asylums. So it was hide them away. Get them away out of here. And, yeah. and there is that kind of a knee-jerk reaction to drug use, yeah. is that as long as it's not happening on Air Street or as long yeah. as it's not happening in the park down in Newbridge, then it's fine. Yeah. But it's not fine. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's really not fine. Yeah. Like... There's a whole heap of destruction going on elsewhere. It's just moving it somewhere else. So I I strongly believe, like in Kildare here, we have 
probably one of the most famous institutions to do with addiction, which is Coon Murray in Atai, right? And it's heaven down there at mm. the moment. There's 100 people in there. 100 people in there for addiction. It right? has saved a lot of lives. It has saved enormous amounts mm. of lives and families and children and, you know, the kind of knock-on effects of it is unbelievable. That's a charity. Do you know what I mean? It's a charity not owned by the state. Um, I'm sure the state funds it to mm-hmm. some degree. But I think the state needs to start taking ownership of this this problem and start building these institutions or these rehabs where people can go to. They do that in Portugal. They do that in Holland. They do it in Denmark. They do it in Sweden. They do it in other countries like that. And in Denmark in particular, once, once the state took ownership of the addiction problem, they cut the addiction problem in half within two years. Cut it in half within two years. That's amazing. Like, that is incredible. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. So you go into you go into a rehab and um, you commit yourself to it for six months or whatever the case may be and all the services are provided for you to ex- explore your own demons that they might be. But not only that, the social services are also there for you that when your time to leave comes that you're in a position where you can have social housing or you can, you know, you can be working towards employment, training, whatever the case may be. That's what we need. And, and a social service that doesn't switch off at, at five o'clock. No, we have it. Exactly. We actually have some of that here on a micro yeah. level, right? So there's an organisation called Asheree, right? Um, they have treatment centres both in Wexford, in Care, in Tipperary and in Ballyragget in Kilkenny, okay? So the one in Ballyragget in Kilkenny is for 15 to 21 year olds. When they're finished there, some some of the lucky ones, when they're finished their treatment there for six weeks, they get what call, what's called door to door. So they get from from Kilkenny to uh, what they call uh, secondary treatment in a place in Waterford called Camilla, which is a, means another step. They live there for a year in Camilla in a community where that all the social the social services, the counselling, the rehabs, or sorry the. The 12-step meetings, all of them are there. They learn how to cook, they learn how to clean, they learn how to look after themselves. The whole life skills kind of thing happens there. When they're finished there, they go to a halfway house for six months, a sober house for six months. And when they're finished there, they're supported to get into their own apartment. That's two years of a programme. That's what we need. We need to start looking at what's working, really, in this yeah. country and putting yeah. putting our money there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um. I think one of the things that 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 you said was was about having more residential yep. care. So we need more residential care. We need more state funded rehab access. So it's about making available yep. to people who can't afford it. There's a there's, there's what's available to people who can. Yeah, there's a there's people tonight, Fiona, not too far away from where we're sitting. Right, I guarantee you. I, I know that's happening. There's people tonight who have been working all week, maybe on a building site in Dublin. Right. And they're coming home tonight and their drug dealer is waiting at their door for them. They're handing them five or six hundred euros of the drugs that they've used over the previous week. And they'll go on tick again from tomorrow night right till next Thursday or next Friday. Now they're working, they're employed, they're earning two grand a week, Mm -hmm. two grand a month or maybe maybe two thousand four hundred a month. But they're giving it to a drug dealer. Now they can't pay for their own rehab. They can't go to these places that that charge ten grand. But they're deemed to be employed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. They're caught. They're really yeah. caught. So if the state is able to step in, and the st- and we should, our proclamation says that, that we should step in, and our social policies say that we should step in, and if we create an environment where, where treatment is accessible to everybody, accessible to everybody, 
then I think change can happen. And, you know, just to, to throw it in here as well, Mick, you know, if mental health services were available to everybody Absolutely. that needed it, I mean, it re- you can't extract extract or isolate one from from the other, oh, you agreed, know. Agreed. I think we have different experiences of CAMS, um, yeah. the child and adolescent mental health services are around the, the country, but I know that the medical f- community are very... Um, frustrated with how difficult it is and I mean there's you know there's a cohort of people there's a group of people that we said you know that 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 I was talking about at the the beginning that are disadvantaged now equally you know in terms of having extra burdens and obstacles on them purely by accident of birth yeah you know, purely yeah. by accident of birth. So I was lucky to grow up in the west of Ireland with a mum and dad who were both working yeah. and I wasn't exposed to the types of things that um, children and all kids are nearly yeah. exposed to to nowadays. And I think that's an important point to make as well, Mick. I mean, in terms of, of social class and how drugs are impacting, I think that is, my sense is that that is levelling out is, to yeah. some degree. It is. That yeah. it, you know, it's no respecter of class yeah. Yeah. and communities across all classes mm. are becoming as vulnerable to drugs and addiction as, you know, traditionally was the case, we'll say, in inner city Yeah, our working Dublin. class community, I'd agree 100%. I think cocaine has been the great leveller in terms yeah. of drug use and in even Ireland. heroin you know i yeah. mean i you yeah. know i have you know i have friends that yeah. you know that have the experience of yeah. heroin in their families and it's absolutely horrific but the hero- heroin is the, is the next step on from cocaine in terms of cocaine is a is um a stimulant so it speeds you up but then you can't sleep at night do you know so some benzos will make you sleep and when they stop yeah. working heroin will make you sleep so it's the next step do you know what i mean so it's kind of I agree with you. I think the class, the class structure or the class system, the gaps are getting closer in terms of drug use. Alcoholism was always there in, in both in the working classes and the, the middle and upper classes, but it was hidden in the middle and upper classes, whereas drug use can't be hidden that much. Do you know what I mean? Once it gets to a point, it becomes very obvious, do you know? So, yeah. So, yeah. If, there was, um, if there was one thing mm. in the morning... Budget is is coming up. Budget time is coming up. If there was one thing that you could ask the the state to do, yeah, that would have the most impact for their for their money, what would that be? Putting um, you on the spot, make a little bit there. I no, know you're it's, okay. it's um, not as easy as just one thing. Yeah. There's no silver bullet, but yeah, I think uh, even without money, I think if the policies were changed, that it started off on, on a foundation of compassion. And you build your policies on that basis of compassion. I think that would be a good starting point. And then secondly, I do, I really do believe that residential treatment is the way forward and state-led and state-funded residential treatment. Um, I think that should be, it should be something that's there for everybody if you need it. Mick, historian, singer, songwriter, <laughs> musician, uh, lecturer. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming in to, to talk to me tonight and it's been very insightful and very helpful. And uh, I look forward to having you back again and talking with you further. So thank you very much. Great, Fiona. Thanks for having me. Fair play. Thank you. Great.